The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Overcoming the Challenges of Acute and Chronic GVHD, the Integration of Novel Therapies into Modern Management Protocols. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KPJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to the Overcoming the Challenges of Acute and Chronic GVHD, the Integration of Novel Therapies into Modern Management Protocol session. Happy that you're here. And I'm Leslie Keene from Boston Children's and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I'm here with Corey Cutler from Dana-Farber and Shernan Holton from the University of Minnesota, and we're going to be your speakers today. I'll start the meat of the session, and I want to thank Corey for this wonderful uh, depiction of what we face when we're confronted with GVHD. This really isn't your grandparents' GVHD uh, that we used to think about really solely on the basis of whether you got GVHD before day 100 or after day 100. In fact, what you can see from the slide is that GVHD is now really characterized into many different subcategorizations. And while day 100 is still a, a waypoint that we really consider, we have chronic GVHD that comes before day 100, we have acute GVHD that comes after day 100. And so if we go through this this schema, what you can see is classic acute GVHD still is scored with skin, GI, and liver manifestations, but those same classic manifestations can occur after day 100 as late acute. Chronic GVHD, if it's classic, Uh, affects many different organs that are shown in the slide. And again, while it often happens after day 100, it can also happen before. And I think one of the most important uh, manifestations that we all see a lot more often these days is the overlap syndrome. It's categorized as chronic GVHD, but includes elements of both and can be very difficult to treat. Now, given the complexity of the disease we confront, It's not surprising that there have been many hurdles to overcome in terms of uh, effectively preventing and treating this disease. And in fact, until just about five years ago, our tools were pretty limited. For prophylaxis, we were really focusing on calcineurin inhibitors, and PTSI plus TAC and MMF was really coming up as a new kid on the block. For treatment, it was methylprednisolone of, of acute, and for treatment of chronic, it was steroids and CNIs, and sometimes MMF. There were a few other agents, but n- none of them really caught on as big players. Well, a lot has changed. This year, uh, in December 2021, we have the first FDA approval uh, forever in the field for GVHD prophylaxis with the approval of abatacept for unrelated donor transplant in combination with CNI and methotrexate for patients as young as two years old and over. For treatment of acute GVHD, we have ruxolitinib that was approved in 2019. And then for chronic GVHD, we have three FDA-approved agents now, ibrutinib, ruxolitinib, and belumosidil. And in this session, we're going to address each of these uh, different stages of acute GVHD, prophylaxis, treatment of acute, and then treatment of chronic. And so I'll start with a talk on preventing acute GVHD. understanding the GVHD biology, and talking to you about the state of prophylaxis. 
And when I conceptualize prevention of acute GVHD, really what comes to mind is hurdles. What are the hurdles we must leap to improve GVHD prophylaxis and optimize transplant outcomes? Well, if you're on the grams, you know a lot of people do how it started, how it's going. Well, how it started was when transplant first started, people had to overcome the huge hurdle of hyperacute GVHD, which killed almost all transplant patients. There were a number of publications that introduced both methotrexate and calcineurin inhibitors. But when you think about how long it's been since these have been introduced, it's pretty surprising. It's been 52 years since the first paper about methotrexate in GVHD prophylaxis, and 36 years since we started using CSIs, uh, uh, cyclosporin or CNIs, and methotrexate. And clearly, we have a lot of room to grow still. And so how it started was coming up with these, uh, these uh, treatment regimens. How it's going is how do we hurdle over CNIs and methotrexate? How do we move forward? What are the new standards? Well, the reason it's been so hard to move forward from calcineurin inhibitors is that while they do have good, bad, and ugly attributes, they are, there are some really good attributes of these drugs. In, in a word, they're super good, they're awesome, they're fantastic immunosuppressive drugs. It is hard to beat them for immunosuppression. This is why it's very hard to design trials to find something better than CNIs. The bad is everything that comes with them. Hypertension, abnormal hair growth, renal dysfunction, TMA, cardiovascular disease. And I would say the ugly is that they do not induce immune tolerance. This means you get breakthrough GVHD, you get relapse, you get impacts, bad impacts on protective immunity. We still must try to do better than a CNI-based uh, regimen. And in fact, there are lots of potential candidates. I'm going to talk about the future at the end of the talk, but today I just want to remind you that I'm going to focus on CNIs because they're the backbone that we still use. They work for, through NFAT um, and downstream effects. I'm going to focus on Avatacep, which works by blocking co-stimulation between CD28 and CD8086. And I'm going to focus on PTSI, as shown here in this beautiful review by Chris Kanakri and colleagues, and lots of work done uh, at... Uh, at Hopkins, uh, 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 PT works by a, comb a combination of effects that that dampen effector uh, T cell um, uh, pathogenicity and support Treg uh, function. So while the hurdles are high, we have been making progress. And the reason I talk about progress is that is the name of many of our national GVHD prevention trials. For this talk, I'm going to focus on unrelated donor transplant, both MUDs and mismatch unrelated donors. So there have been three progress trials to date, progress one, progress two, progress three. I'm going to start with progress two. This was a trial that really sought to hit the ball out of the park and really replace CNIs. It was a phase three study. The control arm was, these were all, uh, well, two bone marrow arms and one uh, peripheral blood stem cell arm. The control was a bone marrow transplant with TAC methotrexate. It was compared with bone marrow grafts just with PTSI, no TAC, no MMF and also with CD34-selected PBSCs. The results were published in 2022 in JCO and interestingly showed no CNI-free intervention was superior to TAC methotrexate. Disease relapse was similar in all the arms, and unfortunately, TRM was higher with CD34 selection. And, and neither of these two approaches have really gained ground over our standard TAC and methotrexate. There was better news from Progress 1, BMTCTN1203. This was published in Lancet Hematology in 2019. It was a really interesting phase two study where it sought to compare uh, post-transplant Miravirac, Bortezomib, 
or cyclophosphamide, this time combined with MMF and, and tacrolimus, and compare them to a contemporaneous CIBMTR control. And as you can see here in the Griffith plot, TAC, MMF, MMF and post, uh, PTSI had the best Griffiths, and this has led it to be used in a further phase three trial. So PROGRESS-3 has, in, has uh, completed enrollment. We're just doing the, the data analysis now. Uh, Shernan, who's on the stage with me today, and Javier Bolanos mead are the co-chairs of 1703 study. Myself, Miguel Perales, and Amibat are co-chairs of a companion biology study. And this study is really designed as a phase three to, to dig deep into whether PTCI-TAC-MMF could be superior to CNI methotrexate. Now I'm going to turn from the studies that we've looked at uh, so far, which are on using matched unrelated donor transplants and also matched related donor transplants, to the issue of HL8 mismatch unrelated donor, or 7 out of 8 transplant. These transplants are incredibly important because uh, most of our patients that are not from Western European descent, so all our underrepresented minorities have a hard time finding an 8 out of 8 transplant, they really need those 7 out of 8 grafts. And unfortunately, the hurdles that we've had to overcome in the past for 7 out of 8 transplant have been huge, and really there's been a lot of failure. The good news is that while we may not be as um, much, have much, as much success as Jackie Joyner Kersey here, an amazing hurdler from the 80s, we're getting there. So there are now three prevailing choices for, the addition, for addition to standard GVHD prophylaxis in mismatch unrelated donor transplant, ATG, PTSI, and abatacept. I'm not going to discuss ATG here because I'll tell you that the data now really strongly suggests that it is not the best option for these patients. I'm going to start with discussing PTSI. There's, in fact, a really nice uh, publication in Blood from two years ago that did a retrospective analysis of EBMT data between PTSI and ATG and really showed that PTSI was better. And then Bronwyn Shaw and colleagues uh, published in uh, 2021 in JCO a multicenter study of PTSI in the MMUD setting. The primary objective was overall survival at one year with a hypothesis that they'd have an overall survival of greater than 65%. So it was a single arm study, well actually two arms but no comparator arm, uh, using myeloablative and also RIC. And importantly, all of these patients received bone marrow allografts. So their overall survival was 72% for max and 79% for RICs. And so the, uh, the study met its primary endpoint and was successful. Uh, they also looked at acute and chronic GVHD. You can see acute GVHD was about, a 2 to 4 was about the level you expect, 42%. This grade 3 to 4 GVHD was maybe a little higher than one hoped at 70.5%. And the chronic GVHD was 35.5%. While the relapse was 30.4%, uh, a little higher than one might hope, the non-relapse mortality, and this was what kills most patients that undergo 7 out of 8 transplant, was only 7.5%, a real uh, triumph for these patients. So to conclude about the 15-MMUD study, the study met its endpoints for survival of, uh, for, of survival and for GVHD and agraftment. PTCI approach was feasible and safe. Outcomes were similar for, to other settings, such as HAPLO, where you use PTCI. 48% of the patients were from racial and ethnic minorities, and therefore PTCI can really be considered to broaden access to transplant. There were higher rates of GVHD and relapse in the myeloablative setting, which still need to be addressed. There's a follow-on study now called ACCESS, which is looking at PTCI for 7 out of 8 and other uh, mismatches uh, in PBSC transplants. So now let's turn to the new kid on the block, abatacept. 
Abitacept is a co-stimulation blockade inhibitor. It functions by blocking signal two between CD28 and CD8086. You can see it here in cartoon form, where because it blocks this critical co-stimulation signal, it can dampen cell proliferation and gener generation of effector and memory cells. I ran the ABBOT2 study, which was published in JCO in 2021, with the primary uh, uh, directive to uh, determine the impact of abatacept on early severe QGVHD, grades 3 to 4 before day 100, with several secondary endpoints, including grade 2 to 4 GVHD, GVHD-free survival. We'll talk a little bit about the 8 out of 8 arm, but I want to focus now on the 7 out of 8 arm, which was compared to a pre-specified match pair analysis from the CIBMTR. This was the study design. It was sort of a standard study, age greater than six and over. They were all ablative conditioning regimens for patients with malignancies. Here are the key efficacy results. So in this slide build, ABBA will be in red. The CIBMTR TAC methotrexate, no, or CNI methotrexate, no ATG is, a, um, is in blue. And you can see that abatacept containing regimen decreased grade 2 to 4 GBHD in a statistically significant fashion in 7 out of 8 transplants. The real amazing result was the amount of reduction of grade 3 to 4 GBHD. And this has been recapitulated in real world experience with abatacept. This led, and the FDA asked for this for the uh, regulatory approval, 100% uh, severe acute GVHD-free survival at day 180, really different than the controls 57.4. I want to point out that the four-dose regimen of abatacept did not decrease chronic GVHD. This might be because of the PK of the four-dose regimen, where you don't have any more abatacept on board after day about 70. Now, given new data to suggest that abatacept actually may be good for treating chronic and that longer-term dosing has also been able to prevent chronic GVHD, we now have an open trial uh, called ABA3, which is randomizing to four versus eight doses of, of abatacept. If anyone's interested in this trial, please come and talk to me. But despite a lack of effect on chronic GVHD, because seven out of eight patients mostly die from acute compu complications, you can see that in the ABITU study, there was a remarkable increase in survival in these patients. The non-relapse mortality was much lower. The relapse-free and overall survival were both better. And here's some data about the ATG. Really strikingly improved outcomes in ABBA compared to CIBMT and CIBMTR controls with ATG as well. Now, here is the 8 out of 8 data, which really shored up this. Remember, this was a randomized, double-blind controlled phase 2 study that showed that ABBA decreased grade 2 to 4 GVHD. It's a trend for grade 3 to 4 GVHD. Statistically improved severe acute GVHD for survival. And very important to our patients, also improved steroid refractory acute GVHD. This led to a breakthrough therapy designation in 2019, to a priority review in June of 2021, and to FDA approval in 12 of 21. Part of this approval was based on some good safety indicators. We did not see any signal for CMV reactivation or EBV reactivation. And quite stunningly, the rate of relapse, I'm showing out to 12 months here, but it was really stable out to 24 months, was very low in both the 7 out of 8 and 8 out of 8 arms. So what I've shown you so far for both PTSI and ABBA are relatively small trials. This is a hard disease to study. And so along with uh, close collaboration with CIBMTR, we have done a real-world evidence uh, examination. And this was actually required by the FDA. So this was a great use of CIBMTR data to get an FDA approval. We wanted to know if real-world evidence could help us pick a winner. 
So here's data from our CIBMTR collaboration. These are patients both on and off study and doing an IPTW approach to, um, to the, the modeling. What you can see here is that abatacept is a clear winner for overall survival at day 180 compared to CNI methotrexate. This is true when uh, covariates were not considered and also at the bottom left when important covariates were considered. Here's our ATG results again, really, I think, confirming that ATG is probably not what you should choose if you have a 7 out of 8 and you can get ABBA or PTSI. And really interesting results with PTSI showing a trend to improved overall survival at day 180 with ABBA. And in fact, when the important covariates were considered, those were statistically significant. What about 8 out of 8? We've now, again, in a close collaboration with both BMS and the CIBMTR, and we have a poster this afternoon that shows some of this data, have done another study with real-world evidence for the 8 out of 8s. Remember that the study that, I sh that led to approval was actually a prospective study. But we wanted to see how ABBA would fare in real-world evidence as well. Again, this was a collaboration between CIBMTR and um, BMS. It compared CNI methotrexate and abatacept to CNI methotrexate ATG or PTSI, again, an 8 out of 8s. IPTW was used. This is some provocative data right here. So this is out to 12 months, and you can see that CNI methotrexate abatacept Actually, this is relapse-free survival, led to improved relapse-free survival compared to our standard CNI methotrexate or CNI uh, methotrexate ATG, and a trend towards improvement. And you can see the, the leveling out there with abatacept compared to PTCY plus TAC method, MMF, really suggesting that abatacept should be considered when you have these tough transplants to do. And I want to take a moment to, to talk about how we move forward. We've now have really good success with both abatacept and PTCY. And I think here we're going to really have to start thinking about trade-offs. What is the most important endpoint that we need to think about? Some uh, approaches are going to give you more acute GVHD, some more chronic, some more relapse, some more infection. What is most important to your patient? And I think that's really what we have to wrestle with as we plan trials going forward. And so let's just talk a little bit about how we hurdle forward. As I said, there are lots of other agents being studied as well. And remember that all of the, uh, all of the strategies we use at this point still include TAC, and we're trying to free ourselves. I'll just show you a few studies that have come from my lab, and there are many others from other labs, really looking at different co-stimulation blockade agents. And I think the future is here, and there's going to be some new trials coming up here. And with that, I'll conclude to remind everybody that CNI remains the backbone of GVHD prophylaxis. The addition of PTSI improves outcomes after 7 out of 8 transplant. And there's a phase 3 trial just completed for 8 out of 8s comparing CNI methotrexate versus PTSI TAC MMF. CNI methotrexate plus abatacept is the first FDA-approved GVHD prophylaxis strategy, and real-world evidence underscores the advantages of abatacept. Future head-to-head -head trials will establish the optimal therapy amongst prevailing strategies or will reveal agent-specific trade-offs. And to remind us all again that more work is still needed to overcome the hurdle of developing a viable CNI-free strategy for GVHD prophylaxis. So with that, I'll introduce Shernan Holton, which will, who will take us to the next uh, part of our talk. Thank you. Thank you, and good afternoon. We'll be moving now to management of acute graft-versus-host disease when it occurs, and really 
speaking broadly about our approach and focusing on recent data, including that presented at this meeting. Overall, the first principle of acute GVHD management is that we need to provide appropriate immunosuppression plus supportive care. So appropriate immunosuppression is difficult to define, and we'll be um, diving into that a little bit deeper. But the second principle that follows is that appropriate immunosuppression is determined by the severity of disease. The way that we conceptualize this is that patients who are at relatively high risk of death due to acute GVHD really need escalated care. They need intense immunosuppression and multimodal supportive care. So it's important to be able to identify these patients. There are two main ways to risk stratify patients. One is by clinical severity, and another is by biomarkers. So here we're focusing on clinical risk stratification, and the way that we approach this often in clinical trials and in practice is with the Minnesota Acute GVHD Risk Score. So the way this was developed was looking at the records of nearly 2,000 people with acute GVHD, looking at all of their individual organ stages, and then ultimately grouping those individual patterns of stages into two main groups, standard risk and high risk. This looks to be more um, able to identify someone who is at risk of high uh, non-relapse mortality, potentially better than the classical Glucksberg grading of 0 to 4. Here I show on this slide Minnesota's standard risk acute GVHD, which accounts for about 80 to 85% of patients with acute GVHD. The way that we define it is with either one organ involvement, and that would be stage 1 to 3 skin, that's about 52% of patients, or mild GI involvement, just stage 1 to 2 GI involvement with no other organ involvement. If there are two organs involved, it can be stage 1 to 3 skin plus stage 1 GI, or stage 1 to 3 skin plus stage 1 to 4 liver. The reason for this you know, seemingly potentially paradoxical um, pattern here is this is really few patients. This is only 3% of patients. Um, as you know, acute GVHD of the liver is really pretty rare these days. And so the, the main focus here is going to be on skin disease, plus or minus a small amount of lower GI GVHD symptoms. When we then look at the response rate and survival, when we classify patients as standard risk versus high risk, we see significant differences. The overall CR and PR rate you can see on the left for standard risk patients is nearly 70%. If we look at the likelihood of response by day, at day 28 for high-risk patients, it's significantly lower. So only 27% of patients who have Minnesota high-risk disease will have a complete response to first-line therapy at day 28, and 16% will have a partial response. So significantly worse outcomes with Minnesota high-risk acute GVHD. The non-relapse mortality then follows that as well. Those who have Minnesota high-risk acute GVHD have approximately two-fold increased risk of transplant-related mortality, with 44% of people having TRM at six months. So that was the clinical staging, Minnesota standard risk versus high risk. There's an online calculator that's available to help sort this out if it's necessary. Uh, but we also want to think about the other ways to try to classify and risk stratify acute GVHD. 
symptoms can sometimes be very difficult to stage, especially when there are concomitant medical issues such as infections, C. difficile colitis. You can have drug rashes occurring at the same time. It can be really difficult to precisely stage someone. Um, Think about the staging also of an outpatient, for example, where you can't capture stool volumes. In, In this instance, it may be helpful to have biomarkers help assess the risk of acute GVHD. Um, Here I show two different systems for biomarker risk assessment. On the left, I show what we're studying at the University of Minnesota. This is with amphiregulin. This is an EGFR ligand. Uh, We previously have reported on this at one of the abstract sessions here earlier today. Uh, Amphiregulin, we have shown, if it's greater than or equal to 33 picograms per mil at the onset of acute GVHD, helps to modify standard risk acute GVHD. So here on the left, we show the non-relapse mortality of patients who have Minnesota high-risk GVHD with high amphiregulin. Obviously, non-relapse mortality is the highest in that group. But next, focused on Minnesota standard risk acute GVHD. Here we can reclassify about 50% of patients as actually having a high risk of death by using amphiregulin. There are very few patients with high-risk acute GVHD that have a low amphiregulin, and so it's not very helpful in that scenario. It's really best to identify those 80 to 85% of standard-risk patients who actually has more damage under the hood that we can't necessarily assess clinically. Similarly, we have the Ann Arbor score. This has been studied extensively and published with multiple different papers from multi-center studies. The Ann Arbor score uses a combination of ST2 and REG3-alpha to generate three levels of risk. Ann Arbor 1 being the lowest risk, Ann Arbor 2 intermediate, Ann Arbor 3 the highest risk. And we show here the non-relapse mortality by Ann Arbor score. So obviously this has been very well studied and is now commercially available for testing through Viracor. So what is the approach that we need to take? There have been a couple of published and completed phase two studies uh, that use this risk-adapted approach in the frontline setting. Uh, The first one in Minnesota standard risk acute GVHD has uh, been published and is available. This was BMTCTN 1501. Patients with Minnesota standard risk acute GVHD who had either Ann Arbor 1 or Ann Arbor 2 biomarkers as well were randomized to receive either prednisone, as we standardly give, versus sirolimus, testing the hypothesis that we can treat patients with Minnesota standard risk acute GVHD without steroids. There was a similar day 28 CR rate between the two groups that was not statistically significant. And what they showed is the investigators uh, looked at quality of life and found that to be better in patients who received sirolimus. So here with this phase two study, we now see that it is possible to use sirolimus in standard risk acute GVHD patients without compromising outcomes and at the end having a better quality of life. On the right, I show the, the, uh, the title of a phase two study that has been completed, and we just presented the data for this uh, earlier today. This is supplementation with urinary-derived human chorionic gonadotropin plus epidermal growth factor. This is a commercially available 50-year-old drug that's historically used for the treatment of infertility. 
This is added to standard high-dose corticosteroids. And in our study, we had an overall 64% day 28 CR between the groups. And now we have FDA orphan drug designation for this supplementation as well. So we're starting to see results of risk-stratified frontline studies coming to the fore. Now let's think about clinical course after initial therapy. We see really three types of patterns occur after treatment. We see an initial response that is sustained over time. These patients do well with no flares. I call this group first-line responsive. I don't call this group steroid responsive because it may be that patients such as this are not treated with steroids in the first-line setting anymore. Then in the middle, we have patients who have severe symptoms at the outset. They get better with immunosuppression, but as it's tapered, there's a flare of symptoms. Their symptoms can wax and wane over time. They may need prolonged therapy, but they often don't die from graft-versus-host disease. I call this group of patients second-line responsive. And then on the right, we have what we always dread, the patient symptoms that are severe and never really improve despite what we do, intensive immunosuppression and supportive care. These patients do not improve. They have persistent severe symptoms and clearly have uh, experienced non-relapse mortality related to graft-versus-host disease. This is a, a situation that we're working very hard to avoid in the future. Now, within these two last groups, we recognize that this will comprise about 50% of patients with acute GVHD. So overall, nearly half of patients who develop acute GVHD are going to need some form of second-line therapy. There has been a lot of work looking at different cytokines for more specific targeting in acute GVHD, both Known, that, known inflammatory cytokines that we have been studying for years, including TNF and IL-6, IL-1, but also now looking at signaling through JAK-STAT signaling and other receptors that you see here. Multiple different uh, cytokine targets and then tyrosine kinase uh, targets downstream, all designed to reduce inflammation in acute GVHD. So here I'd like to highlight some of the results of recent completed and published studies testing new approaches to acute GVHD. Here we're highlighting REACH1. This was a study looking at JAK1-2 inhibitor ruxolitinib in steroid refractory acute GVHD. This was 71 patients, and the criteria for enrollment were GVHD progression after three days, no improvement after seven days, uh, new GVHD that develops subsequently, or taper intolerance. Um, again, about 70 patients were studied. The dosing is listed here, and we show that this therapy was overall fairly safe, but there was a consistent pattern of adverse events, mostly that were related to hematologic outcomes, so cytopenias. Infections were also very frequent, occurring in 80% of patients, and you see below the most common infections that were found in this, uh, observed in this study. The efficacy was what really gave us encouragement. The overall day 28 overall response rate was 55%. Uh, overall response rate at any time was 73%, and the duration of response at six months, uh, or the, the median, was uh, 300, 345 days. Here we show the overall survival and non-relapse mortality by response category, and very encouragingly, even in the steroid refractory setting, seeing long-term survival is incredibly encouraging. Now, how do we monitor such patients? We also presented this uh, earlier today using 
samples collected during our University of Minnesota study using human chorionic gonadotropin, as well as blood samples on that REACH1 study, we've observed that we can monitor using amphiregulin. Amphiregulin is a biomarker that really decreases over time, um, more so than other biomarkers tested. But you can see it does take quite some time for the biomarker to decrease uh, in patients who do respond. So a three-fold decrease in the University of Minnesota cohort, a 2.8-fold decrease in the REACH1 cohort. Patients who do not respond don't have that decrease over time. Now let's move forward to REACH2. This is a phase three study showing that indeed there was incredibly encouraging outcomes with ruxolitinib compared to best available therapy or the control group. In the ruxolitinib arm, the day 28 response overall was 62.3% compared to 39.4% for the control group. And the durable response at day 56 was 39.6% versus 21.9%. Very encouraging. The failure-free survival was longer with ruxolitinib than the control. Overall survival was nearly twice as long as well. Um, the six-month follow-up showed consistent results. Safety, really no new safety signals in this, re, uh, in this REACH2 study here. Again, the main side effects being cytopenias and infections, including CMV infection. We have pretty good experience now clinically using ruxolitinib based upon these studies and have guidance on dosing. So the starting dose is typically five milligrams twice daily. If the blood counts tolerate that dose, we often will escalate then to 10 milligrams twice daily and adjust based on counts, reducing again to five milligrams twice daily or even five milligrams once a day if needed based upon cytopenias. This slide here shows how we have evolved as a field in therapy for second-line acute GVHD treatment over the years. So you see on the left here, immunosuppression types of modalities were really prevalent in the 90s and 2000s. But as we move forward through the decades, there are additional therapies that are being developed that really focus on repair and regeneration and are less immunosuppressive overall. So it's exciting to see this transformation in our field. I'd like to highlight one uh, regenerative therapy that is being tested right now in clinical trials. This is alpha-1 anatrypsin. We do have some phase two data showing its efficacy in steroid refractory acute GVHD. As you see here, there is a, a high proportion of responses in even steroid refractory acute GVHD. Remarkable given, given its minimal toxicity and low, rate, low rates of infection. Again, this is not an immunosuppressive uh, type of approach. So based upon encouraging phase two results, now we're starting to see more studies of this in both the first-line therapy and prevention setting. So there's a phase three study going on right now, BMT-CTN-1705, that's testing alpha-1 antitrypsin versus corticosteroids in the first-line GVHD. And then there's the modulate study testing alpha-1 antitrypsin in the prophylaxis setting. Here I highlight some ongoing risk-stratified acute GVHD studies. We've got two standard or low-risk studies with idacitinib and nihilizumab ongoing. High-risk studies, including idolizumab and natalizumab. And I highlight here some ongoing studies for second-line therapy and beyond. 
So I just want to wrap up with this one slide showing how we're approaching this right now at the University of Minnesota. Um, most of the time we are still working hard to make sure that we can have clinical trials available for first-line and second-line therapy. Uh, we do really advocate for a risk-adapted approach. I think this is very important because we want to minimize toxicities for patients who are expected to do well. So with standard risk acute GVHD, we're focusing on single agents, trying to minimize toxicities. For those with high-risk GVHD, we're still giving high-dose steroids, but we're adding something regenerative and trying to help the gut heal. Uh, we also are trying to add regenerative therapy in patients who have flares. And the way that we are doing this is we're using amphiregulin as a monitoring biomarker in our hospital lab. But we recommend, again, using uh, biomarkers in the context of clinical trials wherever possible. All right, I'd like to hand the controls over to Dr. Cutler now. Thanks very much, everyone, for being here. Uh, you've now heard about effective prevention strategies for GVHD and initial and uh, experimental approaches to the management of acute GVHD, and I'm going to walk you through chronic graft versus host disease in the remaining 15 minutes. So we know that chronic graft versus host disease is not simply uh, biology of acute GVHD that has continued on. It's far more complex, involves different cellular subsets, different T-cell subsets, and involves the monocyte macrophage lineage as well as the B-cell lineage. And so our approaches in chronic graft versus host disease reflect the varying uh, different pathways that we think are involved in the pathobiology. I'll jump right in <clears throat> to talk about the uh, first drug that was approved in chronic graft versus host disease, that is abrutinib. So abrutinib, as you all know, is a BTK inhibitor, which is important for signaling in the B-cell. And the reason why we thought to test this compound is because we noticed that chronic graft versus host disease typically occurs four to six months after transplant, really coinciding with the return of B cells after transplantation. B cells can help generate a certain set of antibodies, and in sex mismatch transplant, the appearance of HY antibodies correlates with the onset of chronic graft versus host disease, and we have all used monoclonal anti-B cell therapy with a drug rituxan and uh, have all demonstrated that this is in fact an effective approach to chronic GVHD in selected cases. And so the pivotal trial was a small 42-patient study. It was initially designed as a dose de-escalation trial starting at the FDA-approved dose of 420 milligrams per day. The patients are shown here on the left. Two-thirds were steroid-dependent, and there were a smaller number that were steroid-refractory. The kicker to this trial was that patients had to have an inflammatory component to their chronic graft-versus-host disease. That is to say they had to have an erythematous rash or a mouth that had active ulcerations or erythema. And the results are shown on the right. This is, in fact, not from the original publication, but from a... Uh, longer follow-up paper uh, presented by Ned Waller, and you can see that the overall response rate was 69%, with 31 patients, 31% of patients having complete responses. <clears throat> and these responses were, in fact, fairly durable. And uh, on the basis of this trial, the FDA approved abrutinib as the first therapeutic in chronic GVHD. Now, we sought to understand uh, in the real world whether abrutinib was, in fact, uh, as effective as it appeared to be in the original clinical trials, and a talented fellow at our institution, Kai Chin, went back and reviewed all the patients at our system who had received abrutinib with a commercial prescription after the FDA-approved date. 
And what you can see here is that the failure-free survival for patients receiving ibrutinib from a commercial source was actually quite poor. The median time to progression was only four months, and the majority of patients required new therapy. It wasn't that they were losing their failure-free survival on the basis of mortality or relapse. It was really, unfortunately, on the basis of ineffective therapy. So abrutinib, in certain scenarios, does appear to be effective in chronic graft-versus-host disease, but I do think it's important to evaluate the real-world <clears throat> performance of these agents that are tested in uh, very narrow clinical trials. <clears throat> now, ibrutinib has now formally been tested in a pediatric-only chronic GVHD trial called the IMAGINE trial. This was presented at EBMT just a few weeks ago. It was a combination trial for kids with either steroid refractory or, in fact, new-onset disease. The patients are shown here, and in fact, on the right-hand side, you see that the adverse event profile in kids is very similar to what we see in the adult, in the adult population. And here are the results. The drug appeared to be very effective in a steroid refractory pediatric cohort. While the majority of responses were partial responses, the overall response rates exceeded 75%. So this really does appear to be a promising agent for the treatment of pediatric acute graft-versus-host disease. This is something we've noted before, that agents that work in adults tend to work even better in kids, and we've done a similar study uh, looking at the IL-2 compound in pediatrics where it appears to work extraordinarily well. Here are the responses that were noted among the individual's organs that were involved in the kids. <clears throat> you can see on the far right that there were, in fact, responses even in lung disease, which is something we don't see very often in therapeutics of steroid refractory chronic GVHD. Because ibrutinib is effective in the steroid refractory setting, uh, the recent INTEGRATE study tested the role of ibrutinib as initial therapy when given in combination with corticosteroids for new-onset chronic graft-versus-host disease. And this is a summary of the results shown here. So on the far left, you can see that the overall response rate for steroids with ibrutinib was no better than a steroid plus placebo arm, unfortunately. And the rates of uh, stable disease and progressive disease were similar across groups. There did appear to be a trend towards an improvement in the duration of, of uh, response for patients treated in combination. You'll note that the curves only separate around the time that most patients tend to move on to second-line therapy, so it's not entirely clear that giving ibrutinib up front would be any better than giving ibrutinib when patients do progress. There were similar trends in the ability to withdraw immune suppression, both uh, all immune suppression and corticosteroids shown on the right. Both of these were not statistically significant, and again, the curves tend to diverge between 9 to 12 months. So what about JAK inhibitors? Dr. Holten already gave us a background on how these drugs work in acute GVHD. They do work in the same manner in chronic graft-versus-host disease. And the trial for us to review now is the REACH-3 study, which is a randomized trial comparing ruxolitinib in steroid refractory disease against a best-available therapy group of agents. This was a large trial and enrolled uh, over 300 subjects. The patients are shown here. They almost all had moderate to severe graft-versus-host disease. But I will uh, draw your attention to the fact that patients could be enrolled on this trial after lack of response or progression after only one week of therapy. And most of us would not consider one week of corticosteroids an adequate amount of time to declare failure.
Here are the response rates. And so on the left, you see the response at week 24. This was the primary endpoint of the trial. And you can see uh, an approximate doubling of the response rate from 25% to nearly 50%. But the best overall response rate, a secondary endpoint of the study, demonstrated that over three-quarters of subjects who received ruxolitinib had a response, the majority of which were partial responses. Importantly, in the best available therapy arm, 60% actually had a response to best available therapy. Uh, and what were the best available therapeutics? Well, they're shown here. You can see that a lot of the agents on this list are things we would not necessarily consider in our standard armamentarium for chronic graft-versus-host disease. So most of us don't use drugs like infliximab or imatinib any longer in the management of chronic GVHD, but these were allowed in this clinical trial. Here are the uh, treatment outcomes. On the left is the failure-free survival. You see a very marked drop-off at six months, and that's because there was a crossover allowed at that time. And so uh, it's very difficult, in my opinion, to interpret the failure-free survival beyond six months in this trial. Here's the side effect profile. As anticipated, anemia and thrombocytopenia, which are on target but not desired side effects of JAK inhibitors are shown here. Uh, Both the erythropoietin and thrombopoietin receptors signal through JAK stat, so one would expect some degree of count suppression on these agents. There is another JAK inhibitor that is currently being tested for the initial therapy of chronic graft-versus-host disease. This is itacitinib and the Gravitas 309 trial. Itacitinib has slightly more balanced JAK1 and JAK2 inhibition. And this is a three-part trial uh, with the first two parts looking at choosing the correct dose for the randomized phase three. Um, The uh, second stage, the part one expansion, if you will, has now been completed. That data is being analyzed, and we're looking forward to the initiation of the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled part later in 2022. And then finally, we'll move on to uh, ROC2, which uh, is the newest kid on the block. Uh, ROC is an important enzyme in helping balance uh, immune synapses at the level of the germinal center. So it both decreases inflammatory Th17 cells and upregulates the production of regulatory T cells. It also actually inhibits fibrosis by inhibiting the final pathways of collagen deposition and differentiation of fibroblasts to collagen depositing myofibroblasts. So this is a compound that has the ability to block chronic graft-versus-host disease at two levels through, uh, through immune suppression and prevention of sclerosis. The pivotal t- trial of belumosidil, or the ROC2 inhibitor, was done in approximately 130 subjects who received one of two doses. There was no placebo in this, in this study. And we looked, of course, at the uh, overall response rate and time to clinically significant progression. Now, the one interesting feature of this trial was that patients were allowed to have small amounts of disease progression and stay on drug if, in the opinion of the investigator and the patient, they continued to benefit from the compound. The overall response rate in this trial was approximately 75%. The 200 milligram once and 200 milligram twice daily doses did not have any difference in overall response rates. It was very important to note that all the patients, uh, all the patients' subgroups, that is, responded equally, 
and it didn't matter if the patient had previously received drugs such as abrutinib or ruxolitinib, response rates were the same, and we noted significant reductions in corticosteroid use as well as calcineurin inhibitor use. Here are the responses by organ system, and again I'll draw your attention to the far right where we see that there were nice responses in uh, bronchiolitis obliterans, the pulmonary manifestation of chronic graft-versus-host disease, and there will be a forthcoming paper looking specifically and in detail at lung responses from the two bellumosidal studies, and that will be, uh, that's uh, currently under review at this time. Uh, I'll talk for a moment about uh, one exciting novel compound that is currently being tested. This is an anti-CSF1 antibody, which is being tested for steroid refractory chronic graft-versus-host disease. The compound is con called axatilumab, uh, and uh, the theory behind axatilumab and blocking the monocyte macrophage pathway, which is dependent on CSF1 signaling, was from uh, the McDonald lab. Uh, and so in a preliminary dose escalation phase one trial, nice responses were seen once we got into what we thought were uh, effective doses of the compound at three milligrams every other, every other week or once monthly. And on the basis of this phase one dose escalation study, we now have the Agave 201 trial, which is a randomized three-armed trial looking at three different doses of axitilumab in steroid refractory chronic GVHD after patients had received two or more lines of therapy. And we look forward to this drug uh, trial reading out either later this year or perhaps in 2023. So this is where we are today in terms of the current pharmaceutical landscape in chronic graft-versus-host disease. There are some approaches that lead to reduction uh, in disease from primary prophylaxis, so the post-transplant cyclophosphamide approach, in vivo or ex vivo T-cell depletion, Co-stimulation blockade, hopefully, is being tested, as you heard, in ABA3. And we are also actively testing B-cell depletion as a prophylactic strategy. Primary therapy for chronic graft-versus-host disease remains steroids, but most of us use a combination of steroids with either a calcineurin inhibitor or sirolimus based on the CTN-0801 trial. And we now have results from ibrutinib being tested in frontline, and hopefully we'll have itacitinib results in the next few years. In the steroid refractory setting, it's quite amazing that we now have three drugs that are FDA-approved in second and third line. Compounds such as abatacept, which was presented in an abstract yesterday, and axitilumab are being tested in clinical trials, but we also have our, our standard go-tos such as sirolimus, mycophenolate, rituxan, extracorporeal phototherapy, and low-dose methotrexate. So how do I choose when faced with a patient with steroid-resistant chronic graft-versus-host disease? So if a patient has pre-existing cytopenias, I tend to avoid ruxolitinib. Patients have, having cardiac issues or diarrhea, I'll often avoid ibrutinib because that is part of its side effect profile. And patients who have very high liver function tests, I'll avoid belumosidil because it has not been tested in that patient population. For my pediatric colleagues, uh, ibrutinib has the strongest data for youngsters, although there is data for both ruxolitinib and belumosidil. I'll give ibrutinib for patients with a prior B-cell malignancy, thinking it might act as a potential anti-tumor agent, and patients who have previously tolerated ruxolitinib for myelofibrosis will often get that. 
And for those patients who have advanced fibrosis, I do tend to choose belumosidil, which has the best antifibrotic activity. But there is a larger question here. So we now have some primary GVHD prevention strategies that reduce the rate of chronic graft-versus-host disease. And all of the agents that we have now are being tested earlier and earlier in, uh, in the chronic GVHD horizon. And it's unclear that we're going to need even newer agents for chronic graft-versus-host disease. And quite frankly, hopefully we won't because our novel agents will in fact be effective when administered earlier. So uh, with that, I'll end and thank you and pass the podium back to Dr. Keene for the question and answer period. Thank you so much, Corey and uh, Shernan. And while people are coming to the podium, I'm going to just read uh, one question from the chat. Uh, so or a couple questions. So the first question was, how can we prepare for, for any add-on toxicity with abatacept? particularly when combined with CNI methotrexate. And I would say what, what we do is make sure that we are monitoring for CMV and EBV. While we didn't see a signal in the trial, there's a lot of good data that any co-stimulation blockade agent will increase your risk for viral reactivation. And so we make sure that we are monitoring for those and actively treating. If you have EBV reactivation, you can treat with rituximab, CMV, we know what to do. And to prevent CMV upfront, if you can, in your patient population. And we've found that with that kind of monitoring, uh, the drug can be uh, delivered very safely. Uh, the person at the, at the podium? Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah. I was wondering if you can discuss the advantages or maybe disadvantages of some of the cellular therapies that have been uh, proposed at various regulatory T-cell conferences, ex vivo expansion, in vivo with donor transplant for LHCT, or maybe... Um, modulation of the Treg pathway as a, a cellular form of immunosuppression? Yeah. yeah, I'll ask Corey to address that. So <clears throat> obviously those are, are exciting, novel ways of thinking about controlling chronic graft-versus-host disease. Most of them remain in early-stage testing. Um, we don't have a lot of access to IL-2, which is required for maintenance of regulatory T cells. Uh, and it's not easy to expand these regulatory T cells and get them into big numbers for repeated infusions. So uh, while the concept might be novel and exciting, we're not quite at prime time yet for these approaches. There's a question for you, Shernan. Is amphiregulin monitoring available outside of the University of Minnesota? The way that we test amphiregulin is just with a commercial, uh, commercial ELISA through R&D, and our hospital cytokine reference lab runs it for us. Um, you can send samples to our hospital lab, so if you go to Fairview's website, um, you can look at their lab guide, and it can be sent to our hospital. Um, but again, I still think this is a, a research investigation, even though it is a clinical lab that is doing for it. We're really mostly testing this in the context of research. Um, but the reason that we chose this is that it can be done anywhere. So it's just the simple commercially available LISA that could be done at any institution. Great. Thank you. I think there's one person at the podium, and I think that will probably be our last. Uh, well, that's okay. You, maybe two, if there's two people. Go ahead. <laughs> Quick. Hi, my name is Manaz, and I come from a solid tumor background, and this is my first time being in this type of um, conference. I have a question, because I used to study the role of estrogen on immune, um, um, immune system in solid tumor. Do you see any, especially for more mature, um, for mature patients, 
Do you see any uh, correlation with, for example, sex, specifically, for example, like estrogen, that you can relate to uh, the host versus graft um, disease? Yeah, so our Pregnal study, where we used pregnancy hormones to treat severe acute GVHD, interestingly enrolled mostly men. So three-quarters of our population were male. <laughs> Difficult to say there. Uh, except we can say that for sure we saw increasing estradiol levels, um, regardless of whether people responded. So I'm not exactly sure how important that aspect is for the response. The, the key thing that I think we did see, though, is that the human chorionic natatropin actually also increased regulatory T-cells, um, and that's known to be protective in pregnancy and clearly really relevant in GVHD. And also it increased testosterone levels as well, interestingly, and that could have a positive anabolic effect in someone who is uh, having difficulty eating or, or feeling weak. So uh, a lot of potentials, uh, potential mechanisms by which that therapy may be helpful. And one last quick question. Thanks. Hi, my name is Alex from the Atlanta Northside group. Um, for Dr. Corey, I'm sorry to uh -huh. use your first name. Um, the last slide, you said you avoid using a brutinib in people previously exposed to rituxan. Can you expound upon that reasoning? Sure. So uh, because a brutinib is a B-cell acting agent, patients who have previously demonstrated themselves to be resistant to a B-cell-directed therapy, it, to me it just doesn't make sense to go ahead with another line of B-cell-directed therapy when we have other options available. And I think we're out of time, so thank you all for attending and appreciate your participation. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KPJ 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, CSL Bearing, Insight Corporation, Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.